I grew up in a, a town uh, by the name of Fayetteville, North Carolina. Um, my mother was a single mom. Um, I had an older brother, Ronnie, who was my hero. Uh, good athlete. I wanted to be like him. I mean, I did want to be like him, but he was four years older and, you know, he, he was a good athlete growing up, like when we were playing ball, you know, outside or in the street or whatever, he could do things, you know, so I thought, gosh, I want to be like him, you know. Um, my mom and dad got a divorce when I was one. Ronnie was five. My dad worked for a, uh, a small family-owned company it was like it was like Georgia Power you know they came and put up uh, power stations they fixed uh, light poles I mean that you know they did those types of things on a smaller scale but he had worked with them for years um, but when we actually came to Fayetteville uh, I was I was five Ronnie was nine and uh, we just started living life, you know, we just started living life. Um, mother was working every day, uh, worked hard. I mean, she just worked hard. And, and she's as tough today at 91 as she was when she was 35. She's tough. And, um, but we had to do a lot of stuff. I mean, we had to wash clothes and hang them out and dust and do those kinds of things uh, to help mother out. I mean, I remember many times we would have guys on Saturday. I mean, we want to go play baseball or football or basketball or whatever. And mother would tell us, you know, before you go out and play, you got to have all your chores done. And all. So we would wash clothes. Here we are hanging out mother's panties and bras and all that on the on the clothesline we'd have some of our our friends help us so we could get through fast enough to go to the ballpark i mean it was just one of those things but it was still a good life it was still a good life um ronnie went through high school uh, good athlete played football basketball and baseball ended up having a, a scholarship offer at um, east carolina to punt he was a, a left-handed punter, and um, or left-footed punter, and he uh, had two brain concussions his senior year in, in high school, so they, they didn't offer him. He ended up going and playing college baseball at, um, which is now University of North Carolina at Pembroke. Now it's called, Pem uh, it was called back then Pembroke State College. So, um, they won a national championship when he was a junior. Uh, not overpowering, but he always was around the plate. Here I am growing up uh, my freshman year. Uh, I make all-conference on the varsity in, in football, basketball, and baseball. And I was big for my age. I, I was 6'1", six, six, 165 pounds and had a real strong arm and I was a punter and a kicker and I could just do some things really because of Ronnie and, and having to play. Mother made him let me play with his friends. So when I was competing with them and I was nine and they were 13, they always won, but it helped my skill level, you know, right. helped my skill level. So when I got closer and closer to being in high school, 
it helped me a lot. Um, not very good. We were not very good as a team in high school, small 3A school, competing against some teams that had, you know, 1,500 students. We had 800 students, but we were in that conference, so we had to compete against them. Um, ended up, uh, I had uh, 45 football scholarship offers and had uh, 10 basketball and had 10 baseball uh, scholarship offers. Um, had an opportunity to, to sign with the Braves right out of high school. Uh, but the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, football's always been my first love. So I decided to take a scholarship to uh, the University of Nebraska. Um, when I was nine so i was growing no 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 when i was 13 i'm sorry when i was 13 of course again you're growing up you're trying to kind of establish yourself but the thing that drove everything in our family was my mom you know um had a great deal of respect for her this was june, uh, june of 1966 my dad who i would see really twice a year i'd see him on my birthday which was december 14th and then I would see him on Christmas, which was just two weeks later. So I would see him two times in two weeks, and I wouldn't see him the rest of the year. I mean, he would call, and we would talk, but, you know, and I knew he loved me. I knew he loved me. Um, but it was just one of those things that was, I knew my dad loved me, but it was mother, Ronnie, and me. You know, that's what life was. All of a sudden, my dad and his company get a contract to come into Fayetteville to put a substation out uh, at a college. It was called Methodist College at the time. Now it's Methodist University. And that was about 30 minutes from where we lived. So my dad and his crew were staying out on the interstate, you know, easily accessible to anything they needed to do restaurants or whatever, but also to go down to Methodist and do this substation. So he, they were there like a month. Well, then all of a sudden, my brother is playing semi-pro baseball in Bladenboro, which was about 60 miles away. It was like a Cape Cod League. College players would come in and play. Guys who had made it maybe to the 2A level or AAA ball would come in and play. Good, good quality baseball. And Ronnie was pitching down there and living with his high school football coach. Um, I was at home with mother, uh, and then all of a sudden, dad called and he shows up and just goes, Hey, listen, you know, we got a contract, we're gonna be here, you know, can we, you know, can I come over and kind of hang out? And of course, mother said, Absolutely. So daddy started showing up. And they, he and mother would go out to lunch, and all of a sudden they would go to a movie. And, you know, a couple of times I walked around the corner, and Daddy had Mother pinned up against the wall, and they were up in each other's face kissing. And, you know, so I'm thinking, hey, you know, this might be a, a reconnection here. So I call Ronnie, hey, let me tell you, here's what happened. You know, I saw Mother and Daddy. Well, I mean, Daddy was over there almost every day. He was over there almost every day. So it was like having my dad home. I, and I'd never had him. I was 13 years old. Uh, 
June 22nd, 1966, I'm out in the front yard mowing the yard. Uh, my mother is inside and uh, she knocks on the window and tells me to come in. So I turn the lawnmower off, go in, and mother's crying. I said, what's wrong? She said, I want to let you know that your dad got killed today. Oh my gosh. And I said, what do you mean? She said, he was up in a, a cherry picker and he got hit by about 40,000 bolts and knocked him out of that and then killed him. So needless to say, that was a, I mean, that was a bad day. Um, and I'm thinking all along, you know, boy, this is kind of a, like I said, a reconnection. This is what's going to happen. Well, we called Ronnie. Uh, Ronnie came home that day and he was a basket case. He was just a basket case. And so for the next three days, my mother couldn't function. My mother couldn't function. Um, Ronnie and I pick out my dad's casket. We pick out the suit that he's going to wear. I'm 13, Ronnie's 17. Um, oh, that's just tough. I mean, I can just imagine your mom just opening up her heart and you opening up your heart to the possibility and then, yeah, that's tough. Well, it, it um, mother never really said a whole lot about, you know, anything they had talked about, whatever. So anyway, after daddy was buried, I felt so much better. It was almost like uh, a closure for me, you know. Um, I don't know why, but I just remember he was a Mason, so we had a Mason wedding. And I, I just remember once they started putting the dirt on his casket or on his vault, I just started to feel better just because it was closure. Well, two weeks later, I'm at home, come home from school. My job coming home from school was take out the garbage, make up the beds, uh, Anything that needed to be done before mother got home at 5.15, it was done. Well, I'm looking in her closet. I put her her bedroom shoes in her closet, and I see a small, um, like a suitcase. And I thought, oh, this is kind of weird. And I look in there, and I open it up, and there are little frilly panties and, you know, little nightgown-type things. And I thought, gosh, my mother doesn't wear that stuff, you know. I've seen what she wears to bed, and she's got, a, you know, a long, a long gown and all that. So mother comes home from work, and I said, Mother, I said, what, what is all this stuff? And she broke down and started crying. I said, why are you crying? She said, well, I didn't tell you all this. She said, but, you know, your dad got killed on Wednesday, and we were going to remarry on Saturday and go on our honeymoon. So that was almost like daddy getting killed again. Oh you know, my that, God. that was tough. So, my, <clears throat> excuse me, mother finally got over that and, you know, started functioning again. And I continued my high school career uh, again, ended up going to Nebraska. Uh, we had just, Nebraska had just won a national championship my senior year in high school. And um, I just thought, you know, I had people call me and say, Terry, um, don't go to Nebraska. You know, they got a guy out there that's supposed to be the greatest thing that ever lived. And uh, of course, you know, I got contacted by Alabama, Tennessee, LSU, Vanderbilt in, in one uh, week, in one week. 
And back then, it's not like it is today. You can go online today and see kids that played two hours ago, you know. Back then, you know, you had to have, go and, and either put it on a bus or a plane and <laughs> those 16 millimeter films. I've, I've got three or four of them in my closet today from my high school days. And so it was a, it was a difference. The old game films that your coach would use for making, for teaching you guys, that's all sure. there was. Sure. It wasn't anybody shooting special video of oh, you for your, not at right? all. Oh, not at all. Not at all. Well, video, they didn't have video. What am I talking about? Yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> so, so basically, um, I thought I, I originally signed with Wake Forest because two hours away from home, my mother was home. Mother had remarried when I was a junior in high school, and I had a little brother that was two, who I, whom I just adored, you know. And my job every day, mother still had to work. My job every day was to get him up, get him fed, get him dressed, take him to daycare. And here I was, like the big man on campus. I would leave him, and he would cry for me and hold out his arms. And then I, I would cry on the way to school. Oh you know, I would cry on the way to school. I'd get into my first period biology class, and my teacher would go, Terry, what's wrong with your eyes? They're kind of red. And of course, I, you know, well, I don't know, probably allergies or something like that. I mean, but I was like a, a young parent to my, to my brother. Uh, ended up going to Nebraska, did not um, achieve some of the goals that I'd set myself uh, for myself. Hurt my knee uh, at the end of my freshman year in spring ball. Uh, really had to set out two years. I mean, uh, almost lost my leg, had staff. Um, so anyway. Well, I will say one thing about your career uh, in college and uh, is you came in and hurt my gators <laughs> in the Sugar Bowl. And I, I'll never forgive you for that. <laughs> well, we, uh, that was kind of, I guess, my coming out party a little bit. Uh, but, but we had a good bunch of guys. I mean, we just had a good bunch of guys. And that was such a um, kind of a dramatic and uh, I, I'm kind of a capstone uh, statement to the end of that year because we'd lost a couple of games and we had not done that in a long time. I mean, at that time, I think we had won 28 or 30 in a row going into that season. But um, it ended up working out, and then that kind of led into my senior year. Ended up uh, signing with Cleveland. Uh, um, I had been told by several draft people that I would go in the second or third round. Well, back then, they had 30 rounds, not like it is today where you have seven or eight. They had 30 rounds. So, you know, I'm sitting in my apartment thinking, I'm not going the second round, or worst-case scenario is what the guy said. Worst-case scenario, you'll go in the third round. So I'm kind of thinking in my head back then, okay, then, you know, I might end up signing for forty or $50,000. Well, you know, 1976... That was a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of money today, but it was really a lot of money back then. I didn't get drafted because they were concerned with my knee. The head coach at, at that time was called the Boston Patriots, was a guy named Chuck Fairbanks. And Chuck had been the head coach at Nebraska when I was in school the first couple of years. And then Switzer took over. Well... He was real good friends with several of our coaches, and he knew my story. 
three knee operations, been in the hospital seven times. So he said, we really liked Terry and we were going to draft him in the second round, but we were concerned and I was a new coach and we were concerned about giving him that much money, you know, and him coming in and having a bad wheel. So once they didn't draft me, just like it is today, they get slotted in. Wait a minute, if he didn't go then, and some, they must know something right. that we don't know. So how do you draft it? So the guy who had been the player personnel at New England or, or Boston was now with Cleveland. So he called me and said, Terry, said, I wanted you in the second round. I want you to come up here and visit us and let's talk. Make a long story short, ended up signing up there. Stayed in the league a couple of years, hurt my shoulder. I had that shoulder surgery. And when I recovered, I threw the ball, I thought, better uh, than I did before I got hurt. Uh, defensive tackle came around, hit me when my arm was exposed and uh, tore a rotator. And so, uh, but again, back then, if, if, if what happened to me back then happened today, they would go in, they would repair it, and in six months, I would be brand new. Back then, no. Oh no, I mean, and they could evaluate and all kinds of. That's things. right. You you had a negative strike against you. So, anyway, um, of course, by that time, um, I had married my childhood sweetheart. We had been boyfriend and girlfriend since. Gosh, I think we we're in the fourth or fifth grade, um, and ended up moving to, uh, like I said, moving up to Cleveland. After we left Nebraska, um, after I got injured, I ended up coaching for a couple of years at North Texas State University with a head coach named Hayden Fry and a guy named Bill Snyder. Bill ended up going to Kansas State, turning that program around. Just real bright, smart guys. And uh, stayed there a year, went to Washington State, which eight of my teammates that played at Nebraska, who all wanted to coach college football, ended up going to Washington State to make up that staff. Um, do you remember Mike Price, who ended up getting the head job at Alabama? Mm -hmm. Remember, and he never coached there. Right. Went to a little issue. Well, Mike was the only one on the staff that was not from Nebraska. No. So I'm going up there to coach at a D1 school, Pac-8 school, with my buddies, you know, and we were going to turn this thing around. And so ended up there, um, ended up leaving there, and got offered a job when I was up in Cleveland during the off-season um, by an ad agency, international ad agency. And... They offered me, I think it might have been $32,000 at the time. Coaching, I was making twenty-four five, and they were giving me a car. But that's just about what coaches were making back then. Nothing like today. So, stayed with the ad agency. After two years, the staff at Washington State got the head job at Missouri, Big 8. At that time, Big 8 was... I mean, they were rock and roll. So I got a call from Warren, the head coach. He said, Terry, I want you to come and coach my quarterbacks. And I said, uh, I'll be there. At that time, I was in Dallas working at this ad agency. 
And uh, so I called the president of the ad agency. I said, just want to let you know that I'm going to be leaving. He goes, no, you're not. I said, well, yeah, yeah, I am too. He said, here, you can't do that. He said, you're going to be the president of this ad agency in probably seven, eight years. And I said, well, I, I appreciate you saying that. Wh whatever that meant, he said, but I'll be on a plane tomorrow and I'll meet you at DFW. I said, Tom, don't come. He hangs up the phone. So he sends me his flight schedule. So I meet him out there. We talk for five or six hours. He gives me a little more money. I think he might have given me six or seven thousand dollars more money. So I'm thinking, well, I've got a son who is two. I've got a wife. And I'm thinking, am I being selfish by chasing this college football dream uh, of coaching? And, and that was really kind of my, my deal. I thought... I'll go and I'll play in the league, NFL, for five, six, seven, eight years. I'll get out, and then I'll be a D1 head football coach, and that's what I'll do. I mean, that was my ideal situation. Well, it didn't work out that way. So I ended up staying, called Warren. Well, what, were you being selfish, do you think? Um, I, I felt at the time I was, Rick, you know, I just thought, Terry, Come on now, look at yourself in the mirror. Now you gotta understand, you gotta understand, when I was nine years old, when I was nine years old, my mother, what woke us up every Sunday morning was the Happy Goodman family, you may not even know who they are. No. Southern Gospel family came on TV Sunday morning at seven o'clock. They had a big, uh, a lady who was like the matriarch of the family just full of Jesus, man, and could sing, had a real big PhD, Pentecostal hairdo. <laughs> and she would wake up every, I mean, she would wake us up every Sunday morning singing, Jubilee, you're invited to the country, Jubilee. I mean, that's what, we didn't have an alarm clock. Mother turned the TV on at seven. That's what woke us up. So one morning we wake up to that, knowing that, you, you're not going to push back. I mean, you had to be missing a limb or couldn't breathe or whatever. You were going to church. I mean, I tell when I give my testimony in, in kind of a humorous way, I'd say we were at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, and sometimes we would go on Tuesday, even though church wasn't there, just so we could be at church, you know? I mean, that's just the way it was. I get it. We sat on the front row. Mother sat on the front row of the choir, and she kept an eye on us. I mean, she did but my mother got up that morning and said, Terry, you and Ronnie, when the pastor gives an invitation, you're going down this morning and you're going to join the church, we're going to join the church, and you're going to get saved. <laughs> so I said, okay. I mean, you know, Ronnie and I were, okay, you, you said it, we're going to do you it. You know how many, how many parents wishes that, wish that worked? Oh, gosh. Every one of us. Oh, I know. <laughs> well... Anyway, go back to your. So I don't think you're. I don't know if you're selfish or not. I just wondered what you're. You just felt like you needed to be responsible to your I, family. I needed to feel like I. I, uh, I really felt like I needed to put on my big board britches and um, get a job. Yeah. You know, I mean, coaching was a big job, hard job. I mean, you're away from your family a lot, yeah. recruiting and all that. But anyway, getting back to that, that, that Sunday morning, I was nine. Ronnie was thirteen. We go down front at the invitation. He asked us some questions. Yes, yes. Um, we go in the back room and we drink some red Kool-Aid and eat sugar cookies. And I remember saying to Ronnie, hey, Ronnie, 
if this is what getting saved is, I'm going to get saved again next Sunday. You know? So, I mean, you know we didn't have a clue. Right. We, we were in church. You right. know, we had it here and didn't have it here. So if I died or Jesus had come back, I'd have missed heaven by 18 inches. Yeah. You know? So I went, Rick, I went from nine years old to 42 years old thinking I was saved. Wow. Speaking at FCA functions, speaking at churches. I was the head of RCA, uh, RA's Royal Ambassadors at our church, which is kind of a Awanas, um, basically. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm thinking that I'm saved. Really. Well, I want to clarify it because I don't know. Who knows? You might have been saved. God, God's well, gracious. Could, could, but yeah. let me just say, but I would say, I might put it this way. You knew Christianity, but you didn't know the Holy Spirit and Jesus. Amen. I knew I would win Bible drills when you would have them at church. Uh, I could state all of the books of the Bible mm -hmm. in a song. Um, I wanted to help people and love up on them and be nice to them and all that. But in my opinion, when it got right down to it, I was lost as last year's Easter eggs. I got you. You know, I, I but I didn't know that I was lost. See, that's the crazy part about it. Sure. I didn't know. I didn't know that I was lost. Um, and you know what? There are people today sitting in churches today that think that they're okay because they're sitting in churches that are lost as well. Yeah. I mean, they are. Now, I'm certainly not God. I, I, I don't make that decision and all of that. But the fact of the matter is, if it can happen to me, it can happen to anybody. Right. You know? So um, I continue uh, to work for the ad agency. Uh, you know, buy our first home. We have our, our second and third child, and things seem to be going pretty well. Uh, my oldest son, Chase, is uh, eight. Uh, my Are you living son, in Dallas? Or? No, right now we had moved. Uh, in 1980, we moved from Dallas to Atlanta. Okay. And this was the next progression of me taking over as the... the uh, um, according to what I was told as the president of this ad agency. I was moving closer to home because I did want to be closer to my mom. I knew she was single and still raising Jeff, but uh, moved here in 80. And, um, you know, again, we were doing life. You know, we were going to church. We had the kids in church. Um, again, do I think I was lost? Yes, I do. Um, would anybody else have guessed that? No. no, because I could do and answer the right things. Yeah, you know? that's the difference. It's between you and God. You, God knows. Everybody has the same walk to walk. You know, you know, and God knows. That's right. Nobody else can necessarily tell. Well, the thing is, is that um, I I, uh, I knew I had neighbors who I don't know. They would come to me and they just wanted to talk. And, and I thought, golly, boy, I, I hope I'm making an, an impression on them, you know, good impression on them, that they feel comfortable about who I am and sharing some stories of theirs or whatever. And a lot of times those people wanted to talk about football and, you know, uh, whether it's in Cleveland. And I was certainly, uh, let me make this, I was certainly no big star by any stretch of the imagination. Um, 
And I, and I was blessed to realize that I know I had an opportunity to do something that not many people have a chance to do. And I'm appreciative of that. Um, February 2nd, 1987, uh, I'm out in my front yard. Uh, Chase is playing with some of his buddies at the back part of our lot. We have a small creek that separated Cobb County and Cherokee County. The creek was probably 15, 18 feet wide, may have been three feet deep. Um, and they were back there building forts and doing all that. Adam was inside. Tess, our daughter, Tess was, if I'm not mistaken, two. Um, and she was kind of waddling around with me in the front yard. I'm picking up stuff. And all of a sudden, uh, Chase comes running to me, screaming, Daddy, 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 Daddy. I said, what's wrong? He said, you know the creek back there? I said, yes. He said, you know Michael? I said, yes. He said, Michael's in the creek and water is over his head. I need help. So my next door neighbor happened to be in the front yard. I said, would you look after Tess while I go? He said, go. So I'm running back there. And it was about, it was probably a couple of hundred feet. I get back there and I come up on a scene that was, I don't even know if you could have staged it. There were six, seven little boys kind of just standing around in shock. Two young men were down on the ground. One was hysterically crying. The other was just so calm and collected. And I get back there and I'm looking. Well, all of a sudden I look under the surface, right at the surface of the water, and I can see fingers, tips of fingers under the surface of the water. One of the boys up so calm, he said, Mr. Lucky can't help uh, Michael. Michael's dead. And so the other young boy was just screaming and crying. Well, I'm thinking, in just a split second, I'm thinking, do I jump down in this hole? Because I don't know how deep the hole is. I'm thinking, you know, Michael's, I don't know, four feet tall. And if his hand's above his head, I'm thinking this thing could be six feet, you know. Or, you know, do I jump down here and take a chance on breaking a leg or whatever, and then I can't help him? So I jump and straddle the hole and reach down in there and pull him out. And he's facing away from me. So when I turn him back to me, his eyes are wide open and he has trash in the bottom of his eyes and he is as blue as your shirt. And I lay him down on the ground and the kids are just, I mean, they're like in shock. And so I start trying to clean out his mouth, you know. And he's got a wad of dirt, mud, leaves, pine straw, whatever, right here in his throat. So I can't get a, a, I can't get an open airway to start CPR on. And at that time, CPR was five breaths, five compressions. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. And now it's, you just do compression. Now really you just do compression. And so uh, I couldn't get it out, couldn't get it out. And again, this took, I don't know, three or four seconds maybe. Then finally I made a decision, I'm gonna just push it down. So I did, I, I pushed that down as far as I could stick my finger. Matter of fact, I cut my finger on his teeth. 
And of course, he's his head's doing this, and I mean, he's dead. He's a dead little boy. And uh, so I start giving him CPR. I'd been working on him probably a minute, maybe a minute and a half. And again, I, I don't know exactly because at that time it's like everything slowed down. And my next door neighbor, a lady, came up and I said, Dan, do you know CPR? She said, yeah, I do. I said, I need you to help me. She said, I can't. I said, what do you mean? She said, he looks like my son. And I said, I know that. And, and here I am breathing, doing chest compressions with one hand. I said, but if we have a chance to give this kid to live, I need you to help me. She said, I can't, I can't, Terry, I, I just can't. I've never laid my hand on a woman <laughs> in a violent way, but I reached up and grabbed her by the collar of the shirt, and I, I, I slammed her on the ground. And as soon as she hit the ground, it's like the light goes on. She said, I'm good. She said, let me do compressions. I said, okay. So we worked on Michael for probably 15, 16, 17 minutes. And we finally got a faint femoral pulse on him. So I said, Diane, don't, don't worry about doing compressions anymore. I said, but I gotta get him breathing. So he's, he's throwing up his lunch, all that trash he had swallowed, all, which was a really a good sign. Mm -hmm. And then finally, you know, I'm trying to spit out what he's throwing up in me. So he doesn't aspirate it and breathe it back into his lungs again. And then finally I hear him go, <gasps> take a real, real faint breath. And then finally I roll him over to his side and he starts breathing on his own. Now we had been working on him, somebody had said, 28 minutes. They had called 911 and the people at 911 were arguing about whose call it was. Is this a Cherokee County call? Or is this a Cobb County call? Oh my gosh. So finally they show up. Do you remember? Do you remember an old uh, movie called Get Smart? Used to come on television. Yeah, it's always a show with. Okay, a, with with. Uh, I don't know those people's name, but that guy Maxwell Smart. Maxwell talk Smart. To a phone, That's exactly talk to his right. phone or something. He would go into the cone of silence. You know, would come down oh, yeah, right. so he could talk with somebody. Right. I almost felt like there was a cone of silence over me when I was working on him, because. I could hear all the stuff going on around me, but it was just almost like things had slowed down, you know? His parents, Michael's parents and grandparents, I felt the tears fall on my, the back of my neck and the back of my T-shirt. They were standing over me crying, Terry, please don't let him die. Please don't let him die. We've already lost one grandchild. Please don't let him die. I mean, they are crying, rubbing my head. Please don't let him die. I mean, I could hear that. I couldn't hear anybody else, but I could hear that. So finally, once the EMTs got there, they, they started, uh, put him on a bag, and uh, they took him to Kennestown. Well, once they were gone, there were 100 hundred people from the community who had heard and come down and I got all the kids together and I was crying. I was upset. I got all the kids together. I said, let me tell every one of you something. I said, if I catch you doing 
around this creek, then I'm coming out here and I'm snatching a knot in people's tail. Do you understand me? And they're going, yes, sir, Mr. Lott, yes, sir. I said, I better not catch you down here unless there's a parent with you. And it took me, I don't know, it took me a couple of days to kind of get over that. Um, I called uh, the ICU unit that night at Kennestone. They told me he had a 10% chance to live. About 13, 14 days later, I get a letter from Eggleston, which is now Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. And it was from the uh, medical director. And they told me, Terry, in the letter, Terry, Michael's gonna be okay. You know, he has some pneumonia, but he does not have any heart damage, does not have any brain damage. And once we clear this up, he'll be home. Praise the Lord. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I cannot tell you what that one phone call, of course, they had already talked with his grandparents and parents as well, did to our community. And then I started thinking, why does it take almost the near death of an eight-year-old to bring people together? You know, I mean, we started talking about having a big picnic, coming home party. We had banners, you know, welcome home, Michael. Um, I mean, it, it was just unbelievable the way people just kind of pulled together. So I thought, man, God is so good. Now you got to understand, I still think I'm saved. I still think I'm saved. So um, I'm coming back from Augusta. This is before cell phones. I stopped at a Waffle House that had a cell phone or a, a phone booth right outside the front door and I called my secretary Audrey I'm on my way back have I had any calls does corporate need me for any reason she said no Terry she said I, I got some bad news for you and I said what do you mean are my kids okay she said oh yeah she said Michael died today and I said are you kidding me I said what did he die of she said uh, he had a stroke and it went to his, his uh, brain stem and killed him. Well, I'm telling you, I was a ticked off human being. I mean, I was so shaken up and just mad at God and mad at everything. I'm thinking, how could an eight-year-old boy drown? He was clinically dead. Fight his tail off to live again alive you fight he oh absolutely <laughs> everybody fight. else fight absolutely i mean his family praying for him other people praying for him, our church praying for him. and i know that's what we're supposed to do but i was mad i mean i was mad so when i get home i i, I love up on my kids guys I, this was a sad day don't know why it happened don't know why god allowed it to happen but it happened. Now this was February 28th. This was February 28th. He drowned on the first. And so 27 days later, he dies. Well, we go to the funeral. I was mad, Rick, I was mad. I go in there, little white casket. I, 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 don't, even know if I, I don't even know if I can get through this. 
you got a white casket, you know, six feet long, five feet long, whatever it is. And I go out and look at him and, and I'm thinking, gosh, this could have been my son, you know. So I break down. I mean, I, I break down. I just had to have a good cleansing cry. Pastor comes up to me and says to me, Terry, I want to thank you for everything you did. You know, God appreciates it. I go, hold up. Don't tell me anything about God. I don't want to hear about God. You know, because if God was who God says he is, he wouldn't let this little boy, I remember saying this, he wouldn't let an eight-year-old little boy die. Twice. I said he died twice, not once. I said, what do you think the odds are of you dying twice? And he said, well, I just want to let you know I'm going to be praying for you. I said, well, thank you. Now, during that 28 days from the time he drowned to the time he died, Rick, I'll bet you his parents and grandparents called me or showed up at my house. And we lived two houses down 15 times. Terry, what can we do for you? We want to buy you a car. I'll go buy me a car. You don't have to do anything for me. I mean, I did what I would hope you would do for one of my children, you know? I said, and you know what? If it happened again tomorrow to somebody, I'd do the same thing. If it happened again, I'd do the same thing. That's what we're supposed to do. And, I, you know, can we buy you something? We want to do something for you. You have no idea. You know, we've lost, we had already lost a grandchild before they had lost a six or eight month grand, grandchild before. I said, my payment would be seeing him play in my front yard again, you know, playing tag or, and he was rambunctious. I mean, he was full of, but he was just a cute, you know, cool little kid. And so um, I just had a tough time getting over that. Had a tough time getting over that. Six, eight months later, a year later, you'd see something on ABC and there was some kid up in Minnesota who had fallen through the ice and drowned. And boy, I would, I'd just get squalled up. I mean, I would just get upset. It would show, it showed the guy reaching in in this hole, pulling him out and a dead little body being drug off the ice. Yeah, to, that would be to tough. try to get, you know, CPR started. I mean, just, just seeing stuff like that, it, that did that did that for me a couple of years. So this is kind of like, um, you know, I want to get all, I know your story, so I've thought about this before, but, you know, God uses things, you know, he's, a friend of mine says he's omni-frugal. He doesn't waste anything. Yeah. So Michael didn't die so oh. for your progression of your faith or anything. Oh, no. We don't know. No, no. But it's so much like, you know, your dad's, you're so close to something, a really... Let's put it this way. A glorious victory. Yes. And then snatch back and lost. Yes. And for someone like you, a competitive person who I know you felt I know you've had that in your college career with your knee and then your pro career and other parts of life. But it's very hard. To, this is one of the things that uh, I'm involved with FCA too on some levels. And one of the things that people, um, athletes have a hard time with is losing. Yes. But... Christianity is a lot about losing. Sure it is. And dealing with loss. Sure it is. I mean, look at Jesus. <laughs> all you got to do is look at him. You can't argue about anything. Not at all. And uh, anyway, so that's, you know, especially that's how it rubs you. You, you had a big, you have victory. The boy's got, the boy's living and it's snatched back. And it's like, because you want the rules to kind of work. 
You want everything to, you want there to be rules for the righteous good life should produce righteous good happy results. But you know, God's got a longer game. He's playing a longer game. Amen. Thank God for that too. Amen. You know, the crazy thing about it is, Rick, I've been involved and had to do CPR four times. Hmm. Four times. Um, the situation with Michael, I remember going in, I think I stayed home from work a day, and I remember going in the day after. And Monday mornings, I'd always have staff meetings with my team, you know, nine or ten people. And we would just go over, hey, guys, what y'all do over the weekend? Even if we didn't talk about business, I wanted to find out more about their families and what's going on in your life. you got a birthday this week, or, you know, that kind of stuff. And then we would talk about clients. You know, well, we had a client call in, uh, thought this looked like it's a little faded out, and we need to make some changes on the production side, of yeah, things like that. I remember, I want to say it was a Thursday, but uh, went in and and I said, Aubrey, you get everybody together. And so uh, we got everybody in there. And of course, they all knew what had happened. And I said, guys, I got to tell you something. And I said, I don't care where you are in your life. I said, I don't care how many children you got. I said, you, and some of you, and I had a couple of them didn't have children. I said, but I'm going to let you know something. If you don't know CPR, you need to learn CPR. Well, then I got choked. <laughs> I still get choked up thinking about it. I said, because it's not a matter of if you'll ever use it. It's a matter of when you'll use it. You know, it may be for your child. It may be for somebody else's child. It may be whatever, but you'll use it. I said, now I'm going to tell you, if you will take my advice and do it, I'll pay for you to go and take the class. I'll pay for you to go and take the class. And I just remember kind of almost having that, that was kind of a mantle for me. And it still is. It still is. So anyway, um, I ended up going through a, uh, a divorce my wife and I have been married 13 years. We had three beautiful, smart, loving children. And uh, that was tough. That, that was a tough thing. Um, th three years later, about three and a half years later, um, I remarried uh, to a beautiful, smart lady who had a daughter. And then about three years later we actually have our daughter together lady, young lady you know Madison right well um, we're living right off of uh, Bells Ferry Road um, Chase is a senior in high school Adam is a freshman in high school sophomore in high school and uh He's dating this young lady who goes to Sprayberry High School. And uh, of course, our, our Madison, I mean, uh, Leanne, uh, Janice's daughter from her previous marriage, she was going to uh, Sprayberry as well. Well, it, uh, we'd always have kids at our house. I mean, 
We had a big old house, about 5,000 square feet. It had finished basement, had weight room, pool table, you know. And of course the kids loved to go down. Had a ping pong table. I mean, it was just fun place to be. Um, I was probably not stringent enough on them <laughs> when all that was going on. But um, I remember coming home from work one day and Adam came in and he'd been crying. What's up, man? He said, uh, just want to let you know that, um, gosh, what was her name? I just forgot it. K Kelly. Let you know Kelly got killed today, Dad. This was a little girl. He was dating, you know, 10th grade dating. Right. I said, what do you mean? He said, she got in a car wreck and got killed. There were five of them in the car. And three of them got killed. I said, you have got to be kidding me, son. I said, I am so sorry. I said, what, what can we do? And again, you got to understand, I'm going to church. You know, I'm, we're going to church. There's a crazy car wreck, too. I mean, those, those people went to our church. and We, we uh, I said, well, I need to, let's find out what the deal was. Well, this gentleman who lived right off of uh, Piedmont Road, um, had a daughter that was a freshman cheerleader. It was homecoming that week over at Sprayberry. Sprayberry? Yeah, Sprayberry. And um, five of the varsity cheerleaders, all of them were uh, honor students, beautiful, you know, come from good families, were they perfect? I'm sure they weren't. But just top-notch young ladies. Well, they got in their car and drove over to this cheerleader's house and decided they were going to roll her front yard in toilet paper. <laughs> so they got out, you know, it was later on at night. It must have been 9 o'clock, 9.30 or whatever. Um, well, the dad of the freshman cheerleader came out of the house, saw them, got angry with them, scared them off. They ran to get in the car. He goes and gets in his car and starts chasing them. So they're driving through neighborhoods at high speed and he's trying to, you know, hawk them down and find out who did this. They get over into the neighborhood uh, right beside J.J. Daniels School and the young lady who was driving ends up thinking, well, I'll turn my lights off and he won't be able to see us. Well, I guess on one hand, that was probably sounded like a good idea, but realistically, it was an awful idea. Well, she misses a turn and hits a pine tree, and three of those young ladies are DOA. I mean, they get killed immediately. The other two ladies are banged up, beat up. Um, now, that being homecoming week, at Sprayberry High School. Uh, of course, everybody was fired up for the game, and, you know, they're having uh, pep rallies. I mean, it was like a festive event until this thing happens. Well, I mean, I, I'm trying to love up on my son. And I'll tell you this, Rick, I'll bet you for three or four days in the basement of my house, 
it looked like a plane crash had taken place. We had 10, 12, 15 kids that would just want to hang out down there, spend the night. Of course, you know, I went down and, and policed them, but because they just wanted to be with each other. They yeah. just wanted to kind of love up on each other. Console each other. Cry, grieve, you know, all those things. Well, three days later, a couple of days later, I go up to uh, Winkenhofer Funeral Home on uh, Highway 5. That's where they're having their funeral. Or that's where their, their bodies are, are lying. So... I go up there, Rick, I get out of my car, and you would have thought that we were getting ready to go into a concert. Kids and parents were lined up to get into Winkenhofer Funeral Home, I, I, I'm gonna say 150 yards, 100 yards. I mean, it was unbelievable. I, I'm thinking, what in the world? They had these three young ladies in three separate rooms, one of the caskets was closed because of damage that it had done. The other two were open. The parents were standing in front of their cat, their daughter's caskets. Now, let me tell you this. <laughs> you would have thought by the look on their face that they were welcoming people to a wedding. They were smiling. They were hugging on these kids who were coming up, falling out in their arms. You know, she was my best friend. You should have heard some of the things. She was my, I went in rather than standing in line. I went in and just kind of meandered around because I, I, I knew something was wrong with me. I knew something was wrong with me. And again, now, I still think I'm okay. Um, the parents were saying, you know, it's okay. You know, I, we know where she is and it's okay. Well, I get out. I stay there about two hours. And Rick, it, it is so surreal to me. I walk outside, and I call my brother. I said, Ronnie, something's wrong with me. He said, what do you mean? So I, I gave him the, I came to this funeral. You know the girls? Oh, yeah, I knew about that. How's Adam doing? He's doing okay. I said, but I go into the funeral. I'm listening to what the parents are saying to the other parents and to the kids and something's wrong with them or something's wrong with me because I don't have what they have because I know I could not stand in front of my child's casket and act as though I'm welcoming you to a, to a wedding or to a homecoming or whatever. He said, well, Terry, maybe they're taking drugs to help them deal with this. I said, could be. You know, I... I I said, but Ronnie, I, I don't think that's it. You know, they're not like zombieing around. I mean, they, this is like, they are so upbeat. Rick, I, I, I can't get over it. I mean, I come home and tell my wife, I said, I have no idea what's going on, but I know this, what they have in here, I don't have. Now I'm 40, <laughs> 43, 42 years old thinking that I've been saved for 34 years, you know, uh, thinking about how many times I've spoken in church at SCA on Wednesday nights at school banquets, middle school function, whatever. And here I am standing in front of them as a lost person. So the next day, 
the funeral takes place for one of the young ladies at Mount Perrin North. The lady gets up and says, place was packed, Rick. Place was, you could hear a gnat breathe. It was, so, it was so quiet. She said, what a glorious, first thing, what a glorious day this is. She said, it's homecoming this week at Sprayberry, and it's homecoming for Leslie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I'm sitting there, and I'm listening to these kids, primarily kids, kids and parents, and they are just wailing. Well, I mean, this is after she started to talk. When she first started talking, it was so quiet. Well, then things kind of calmed down. She said, you know, she said, uh, I thank God that he's in control. And I just want to let you know that I appreciate your heartfelt condolences. I appreciate the nice cards and letters and flowers and all of those things. She said, but you need to understand something. She said, my daughter is in heaven with her Savior. And I'll see her again. You know, she left here my, according to me, my, too soon. She left my world too soon. But I'll see her again. And she, Rick, she spoke for 15, 20 minutes. Had a smile on her face. And it was unbelievable. Unbelievable. So, I called my brother again. And I, it might have been Friday or Saturday. I said, Ronnie, I'm telling you, Something is wrong with me because I don't have what they have. Well, I go to church the next day, and I'm burdened. I mean, I'm I'm burdened. I, I feel like I almost feel like I'm having anxiety attack, you know. And so I'm working in the parking lot. I'm part of the parking lot ministry, and you know we're welcoming people and loving up on them. Thank y'all for coming. Come on in. You know, if you've never been here, I'll take you to your Sunday school class. I mean, it, it, we had people, it was rock and roll. And I remember sitting up stairs in the balcony and I tell my wife, I said, I gotta go downstairs. She said, what do you mean? So I felt like my heart's gonna explode. So I go downstairs, I find our head deacon. I, I grab his hand and I, I I say drag him, almost drug him into the prayer room. I said, you and I need to pray right now. And he said, okay, what are we praying about? I said, I'll tell you when we get in there. So we lay down on our faces. We get prostrate on the floor. And we start crying out to God. I mean, I'm praying, Lord, I, I don't know what it is. You know, if you feel like you need to go ahead and take me, take me. I don't know what it is, but I know that I don't have what these families have. And I want, whatever it is, I want it. Well, I felt a little bit better. I'm the last one to leave church that day. Wildwood Baptist Church sits on Wade Green Road. And it was a, uh, at that time, a two-lane road they were making into a four-lane road. So it was pretty darn busy. There was always, I, with every five, six, seven, seven, there was always cars coming. I mean, it was just all the time. I leave, I drive out 
in the middle of the four lanes, little crossover area, and the power of God hits me. And it's not like the lights started blinking off and on or anything like that. But it's just like, I don't know if it was a, a wave of air or whatever just Joy. hits me, hits me. And I start crying. Yeah. I, put, I put my car in park and I start crying. Uncontrollably start crying. In the middle of the high, the middle of four lanes and yes. the, the medium. Yes, God. yes. I start crying and, and I, I cry and I say, God, I know I need you. And quite honestly, I don't know if I have you because if they have you, then I must not because I don't have what they have. And you must have obviously worked in their lives. So I'm asking you right now to be my Lord and Savior and save me. I want to follow you. I want to be obedient to you. I want to give my life to you. Rick, I almost felt like I can't even tell you what was lifted off my shoulders. You know, I sat there for 10 minutes. Not one car came by. Not one car came by in 10 minutes. Crazy. I mean, I'm crying. I mean, I'm crying out to God. And, and I'm thinking, I, I, I just can't believe this. So here I am sitting in the middle of Wade Green Road in front of my church. And that's where I asked Christ to be my Lord and Savior. Now, I'm going to give you a postscript that's not in that or it's not in you haven't heard. About eight years later, I'm sitting in my office. This magazine had already been published and handed out. I asked the church, and you you know about printing. Once you turn on the once you turn on the, the printer, I see it's, it's just paper and a little ink. So I asked the church, I said, print an additional 500 copies for me. And at that time, I was coaching again. I was going to work at the ad agency as a senior vice president. Called my president and said, I've been asked to coach at this 7A high school. Is it okay if I go over during football season at 4.30 instead of leaving at 5? And coaching, he said, as long as you've got your Blackberry with you, Blackberry. I said, okay. So I'll just keep it in my coaching shorts. So I, uh, I would give out to our players and other kids. They let me walk down the hall at North Cobb High School and hand out those. And never had one person say anything to me about it. Of course, I'd been around there. This was at that time three years. I was there four years. So I've been around there, and most of the kids, hey, Coach Luck, how you doing? You know, kind of new. So, but I was giving that away. Well, I get a call in my office. My secretary said, Terry, you have Miss Karen on the phone. Do you want to speak with her? I said, I, Audrey, I don't know who she is. Just find out what company she's with, because I'm thinking, if she's a client, I don't want to be embarrassed. If she's a prospect, I don't want to be embarrassed. You know who it? She said, Audrey came back and said to me, this is Leslie Karen's mother, the young lady that got killed in a car wreck. I said, absolutely, I want to talk with her. She said, hey, Terry, how are you? I said, Miss Karen, I'm fine. She said, please don't call me Miss Karen. She said, uh, 
do you have a couple of minutes that I could come in and talk with you? I said, absolutely. You, you tell me when. She said, can I come tomorrow? I said, yes, ma'am. She came in. She was carrying that magazine. She came in and she said, uh, I just want to let you know that I sincerely appreciate um, your testimony and how the death of my daughter had an impact on kingdom. <laughs> of course, yeah, now, I can, get, I can get crying when they open up a new Walmart, just about, <laughs> you know. So I, I get, I mean, I get a little emotional and I said, well, you got to understand how, in one way, how sorrowful I am that the life of your daughter was lost and it impacted me, but it impacted a lot more people, Miss Karen. She said, I want to tell you something that I've never told anybody. I said, okay. She said, the night of the accident, I'm sitting at my house. Leslie's out with some friends of her and with the girls that she was with, I felt real comfortable and confident. She said, I'm just sitting there waiting for her to come home. And she said, it was about 10.30, knock comes at the door. She said, as soon as the knock came at the door, I knew Leslie was dead. And I, she said, I went to the door, opened it up. She said, I, I got teary a little bit. She said, the two sheriffs uh, said, are you Miss Karen? Yes, I am. Do you have a daughter? Yes, I just want to inform you that she was killed tonight in an automobile accident. She said, Terry, I just felt numb. She said, I fell out. And she said, I hardly remember what happened the next 10 or 15 minutes. She said, I called my best friend. She came over here and we cried and gnashed teeth together. She said, I started praying. And she said, I asked God, you know, to raise her from the dead. And she said, I kept praying that. My friend kept praying that with me. She said, Terry, I believe with all my heart that if I went down to the morgue, laid hands on her and prayed for her, that God would raise her from the dead. And she said, I got my purse. I went out the front door, got in my car. As soon as I cranked my car, started to put it in reverse, she said, the Holy Spirit said to me, wait, more people will come to know me through her death than will ever come to know me through her being raised from the dead. She said, I put, uh, put my car in park, turned it off, and went back inside. And she said, I'm glad to know that I'm talking to a person that God used to get you into, get you into the kingdom. And I, by that time, I mean, I, of course, she's crying, I'm crying. And I mean, I'm crying I, right now. Oh, by that time, I mean, I'm thinking, goodness gracious. I mean, it's just, just unbelievable. That's unbelievable. the truth, though, because I, when you're you're sitting there and saying, "Oh, I wouldn't have been able to do that," I go, I went to that was when I lived in Atlanta. That went to that church, and I know that we when we have funerals, they're generally celebrations, you know, homecomings. That's just the way. That's our church, and uh, I. But I think if I, if I lost Waverly or Andrew or Philip, I don't think that I would. I think I just, I mean, I wouldn't be cursing God, I'm, no. I, but I would be, I would just be grim. I think in, uh, unless God 
lifted me up. Amen. And that's what, and so to hear her say that, that's what happened to, to Miss Karen. God lifted her up. And, you know, and I'm sure it still hurts today not to have her little oh, girl. Absolutely. But, absolutely. But God, you know, and that's, that's the difference. That's our life. That's what we have in Christ. We, he says, I, he, he goes, you're going to have tribulation in this world, but fear not. I've overcome the world. We're above this world, what yes. we have. We get to touch something that goes beyond the normal pains that everybody has. We don't get to not have those pains. That, amen. But we get to transcend them and rise above them because we're in touch with the Father who, again, is playing a long game. Well, you know, I, uh, I guess tying into that, I always try, depending on the age group of the kids, I'll always try to say to them, guys, y'all need to understand something. When you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, does that mean everything's just going to be great and cool? No. You're going to have tribulations. There are going to be things that are going to be tough for you. It might be family issues. It might be death. It might be uh, some malady that hits you, whether it's uh, you know physically or whatever. I said, but think about this. I always try to think about an air, airplane flight. You know, God doesn't promise you a smooth flight in your life. It's, it's what to do. Well, I, I just really thank you for sharing that story. It's, um, it's powerful. It's true. And, you know, on so many levels, just the way, you know, I'm thankful that God touched you. But just that this, you know, Ms. Karam's sacrifice of praise, yes. at the very least, continues to carry on hopefully someone will hear this and they need to hear amen yeah because we're all i know that the people who listen to this are going through stuff and um my my whole purpose with this podcast is to glorify god i figure i think about it like this i don't know how many people will listen to this but there's one person listening i know god and that's the first person and then there's me and you and i've had a wonderful time uh praising the lord and i'm touched again by your testimony well let me tell you this think about this if only one person gets saved, they're going to be rejoicing in heaven. Amen. You know, he leaves the 99 to go get the one. I, I had a... a